What's new? What's happening in your neighborhood? Oh, you know. Sometimes things are coming, coming and going. Like my bowels. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just need a good push. Coffee helps that. I mean, you feel me on that? I do, man. Come on. Oh, well, you know, some of the time. Coffee gets the, the time. fucking shit going, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it really gets those intestines to start just, contracting and pushing that shit through. Just stirs up the old hurricane. It really does, man. But setting that aside for a brief moment, Scott, i just like to know what is up with the number seven in the Bible, you know? I mean, it's mentioned over 700 times in both the Old and the New Testament, so like, what's up with that, dude? That's a good question, man. I actually don't know. Ah. So I'm just going to be honest and tell you that I don't know, since I'm not an expert in those matters. But I do like the number seven, especially seven up, dude. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not trying to play down your question. I'm sure there is some it's okay. significance, especially 700 times. That's quite a few, but, sure, you know, anyways, I wish I had more of a complete explanation for you, but I really don't. So don't hate me. And that's fine, and I Come don't on, hate man. you. Don't hate me, dude. I don't hate you, man. I love you more than I ever did before. Wow. Oh, okay. Well, Coop, but... <laughs> I think there needs to be a little a little quid pro quo. You know what I mean? A little squid pro row. Sure. You know yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you this, man. I know that numerology is pretty fucking huge in the Bible, and that the number seven is said to symbolize completion or perfection. But, man, there has got to be a bigger meaning to it all that we've simply forgotten over time, right? Oh, probably. I bet you, you know, it could be the seven watchers, right? The seven sages could be related to these people who were part of the civilizing cult to rebuild the world after disaster. I mean, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. We might have forgotten we could be a species with amnesia, to quote one of my favorite journalists. But, you know, time will tell. Time Time will will tell. I do know this, though. It said that God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. But why did Moses go up to Mount Sinai seven times, bro? And why did they march around the city of Jericho for seven days, tooting their whistles until on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times before the walls fell? And why did Elijah pray seven times before a cloud that resembled a human hand formed and made a rain like never before? These are all good questions, just in, just in general, but good thought exercises for sure. And why are there seven stars of God and seven angels of seven churches and seven gifts that are holy? And do these seven gifts go to seven holy men? Don't forget the seven deadly sins, homie. Shit, dude. Yeah, seven is pretty fucking important. I I agree. I mean, clearly, you're, you're not wrong. And there are said to be seven chakra points on the body, right? Seven colors of the rainbow and seven musical notes or the saptak swaras in the Indian fundamentals of music that are universal. That's where we get the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, which stems from the Indian sa, re, ga, ma, pa, da, ni. Whoa. Yeah. You're like nin- ninja-ing my mind yeah. right now, dude. Cha, cha, like I'm just, I feel like I'm just, yeah, I feel like I'm just sitting here just getting walloped with truths. Dude, jiu-jitsu truths right there. Boom. In your face. It's all <laughs> very interesting. But Scott, in the Bible, which ladies and gentlemen, this episode is not about, by the way, we will get to the show here shortly, I promise. But why are there seven spirits oh man dude i feel like i'm on jeopardy and i'm losing i don't know <laughs> i don't know well, you know that these seven spirits have names though right uh yeah and that those names are the helper the holy spirit who is in you a new spirit 
the spirit of grace, the spirit of glory, the spirit of supplication, and my witness. <laughs> it, it may depend on which translation that is being referred to, but I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Everyone knows that, right? But Scott, which spirit is the most powerful? Oh. <laughs> Can I phone a friend? Yes, phone <laughs> a friend. Could I? Is there is there like some kind of resource I could use here? Yeah, to... yeah, yeah. Actually, hold on, hold on. Let's let's call a friend really quick. I'm gonna actually. I'm really gonna call a friend here. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's let's try to put this on speakerphone. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Great. <laughs> Dude, just oh no, 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 we're uh, we're not ta- we're not calling about that. I have Bastard. Scott, Scott, and I, I, right. Scott and I here are uh, asking, or we're calling you to ask you a question. <laughs> you are? Yeah, Scott and I are calling to ask you a question because I presented him with a question. He doesn't know the answer to it, so he's phoning a friend. Welcome to the show, my friend. So, so Benny, um, what spirit out of the seven spirits is the most powerful? What in the hell are you doing to me? <laughs> we just need an answer. I don't even get the question. What the heck? Out of the seven spirits, which one is the most powerful? Well, let's see. I think I could strangle you. Yeah, I think mine. Oh, wow. Okay. Time's You're up. Calling me right now. What the heck? All right, gotta go. Annie, we'll talk to I, you later. I don't even know what that is. The seven spirits. I have no idea what that is. That's fine. We got the answer we needed. Thank you, buddy. You want to you want to say goodbye to the audience? Oh, he hung up. I thought he was gonna say yeah. um, Maker's Mark. But that, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's the seventh spirit. Well, I'll tell you who the most powerful spirit is. Um, so according to Google's algorithm, the most powerful spirit. Is ever clear. <laughs> Not the band, the booze. I was on the right track, dude. You were. I was on the right track. You were. So today we are going to discuss the topic of ghosts and ghouls and specters, spooks, phantoms, apparitions, poltergeist, haunts, wraiths, spirits, whatever one may call them. It's just going to be, you know, a lax show. Nothing too crazy. We're just going to discuss some random old ghost stories from way back in the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking. Adam and Eve were just laying around telling each other stories about angry gods and demons at a place called hell. Just like the tough truths in life. Absolutely. But Scott, first, I think the audience is expecting some extra thick puddles of sticky ectoplasm that make up the greatest segment of any podcast in any dimension. Oh, I love it when you do that, man. That's true. It's time for this week's segment. Trey! Portrait. Oh, yeah. I know the music comes in, but like, it just washes me out, but I still like to do that. Anyways, oh, it's great. It adds to everything. It's just perfect. The band needs it. The band needs the extra, the extra music, the vocals. The band needs that, exactly. All right, hang on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, those of you who are following along with us today, welcome to Trey Per Trey. Our first story comes to us from www.theguardian.com. The Guardian. Wow, I feel 
I feel safe. I do too. This first one's out of England and Wales, and in a study recently published, apparently rising numbers of people are being found long after death in England and Wales. So just to provide some context of this headline, because I want I want you guys to know what I'm talking about. I mean, you feel me on that? I do, man. Growing numbers, and this is this is citing exactly from from the study. Growing numbers of people in England and Wales are being found so long after they've died that their body has decomposed. It's definitely just like a shocking trend, you know, if you Holy think about shit. it. People think partially it's because of social isolation and just aloofness in general. Apparently, such deaths have been rising steadily in England and Wales since 1980. They think that there's a sort of a widespread societal breakdown. People aren't checking in on people. People are hanging out, doing a lot of stuff on their own, and then they die. And then much after, like long time after their bodies decompose, people realize that they're dead. So that, that's what this study is is talking about. Damn. Yeah, so if you think about it, a lot of people would be shocked that someone could lay dead at home for days, weeks, or even longer without anyone being concerned about it. Yeah. People in the community don't see him around, but they don't say anything. And Dr. Lucinda Ham of the University of Oxford and four co-authors who co-authored this study said that, yeah, I mean, it can be a shocking thing, but why are the people not shocked, you know, when they're not hearing from this quote-unquote loved one or this person that they know who suddenly disappeared? But the undefined deaths, which is kind of which is what they're calling it, um... People who died at home specifically, who have gone undiscovered, they've gone up considerably, and not not just for one gender, but both genders since 1980. So it does say that men are more likely, or more than twice as likely as women to be discovered in a decomposed state. Interesting. According to the doctor's study. I know, yeah, that's interesting, right? More people are more apt to look in on the women and not so much on these... You know, I don't know, maybe isolative men. Um, but more often than not, they find the women before they're fully decomposed and the men the opposite. But pretty crazy, dude. They cite specifically one case, Laura Winham. She was 38, had severe mental problems, and she was found in a mummified, almost skeletal state at her flat in Surrey in 2021. And this is more than three years after she had died. So it took that long for her to be discovered. And in another case, Sheila Cilione, she was 61. She was found badly decomposed in her flat in London, and this is two years after she had died. Holy shit. Exactly. Yeah. You've cut off all of your links. They, I mean, everybody in the study, all the co-author, co-authors link it ex- exactly to loneliness and just loss of social networks in general. Um. But it's a very common problem, so try to keep your friends close. And your enemies closer. Your enemies closer. They may be the ones to find you. (laughs) Yeah. To quote the World Health Organization, last week, loneliness was declared to be a threat to health on a global scale and pose a risk of an early death. So let's try to, you know, try to get out there, man. Get out there. Scare up a chess game from time to time yeah dude i mean yeah i'm glad they're coming out and letting people know like maybe you just have an extra game of backgammon from time to time or throw some hearts maybe p knuckle you know little p knuckle dice 
just throw a dice from time to time. Get in that alley and just, you know, play some craps, throw a couple bills down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just Shit. put it all on black. Yeah. On that note, our second story comes to us from the WashingtonPost.com. A second recipient of experimental pig heart transplant surgery has passed away almost six weeks following the surgery. Now, just to give a little background on this this headline, Lawrence Fawcett knew, and he, this, this guy knew, that his last chance at life was an emergency heart transplant. The only heart available was from a pig. So the 58-year-old agreed to it Damn, last dude. September, said he was hoping for the absolute best, but I'd knew so. that he was only the second person in the world to undergo that procedure. It was very highly experimental surgery. And they didn't guarantee that, you know, no one said, oh, if this is for sure going to work. They said, hey, we'll, we can at least try. Right? So immediately after the surgery, he did show some significant progress. Um, and they thought, you know, it just seemed very positive. Right? Um, but then the heart began to show signs of rejection which is, of course, the most significant challenge involving just transplants in general. And nearly six weeks after the surgery, Fawcett passed away. So he is the second patient to die after receiving a genetically modified pig heart. Um, so, so far... Jeez, what happened to the first person? I believe it was a similar situation. Um, David Bennett, he actually died two months after his groundbreaking surgery back in 2022. Um, so this this second death comes about 19 months after the first person passed away. Same kind of deal. It was just a rejection of the heart. I mean, doctors are hoping that maybe this organ swap from genetically altered animals could address the shortage of organs available. So that's, that's the point, is there just aren't enough organs available for these transplants. So they're looking at alternate means, but... Honestly, so far it's not looking good, is what I would say. Two for two. Um, not good. Two for two. So we'll see who the next person is. I, I feel like, you know, just from my perspective, I feel like the next person would probably be kind of wary yeah. about it, you know? You have to be at the last, like, straw. Like, all exactly. right, I got nothing. Let's do it. I got nothing to lose. Give me the but pig he, heart. Even then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I'd just... Nah, time to go, man. I don't want a pig's heart in me. Just chuck it up to is what it yeah, is. Yeah, right? because then you're just living with a pig's heart. At every second, you're like, this could just stop. Any fucking second, True. it's a pig's heart in my body. Like, True. You have no idea what that's going to do. They don't do. live as long as humans. No, and they're so. not humans. Like Even though like the closest to a human in terms of like organs and skin and shit, yeah, it's most similar to a human being but man i don't know animal heart and a human just obviously it's doesn't work it's just not meant to be there no you know uh, pig's heart's a pig's day. heart human's heart's a human's heart that's why we have different hearts exactly <laughs> but hey if you can make it work you can make it work i could see you that you're just that old guy on the porch you know like years down the road he's like you know what human's heart's a human's heart pig's heart's a pig's heart <laughs> yeah. get off my lawn yeah i've signs up huge like yeah dissenter amongst <laughs> radical organ replacement wave. Humans have we... human hearts. Pigs <laughs> hearts stay in pigs. Yeah, that's oh, me. That's me in about five years. <laughs> well, more on that as 
more experimental studies come to the forefront. Our last story of this week's Trey per Trey. Thank you for following along, ladies and gentlemen. Comes to us from Reason.com 2023. Chicago police. Oh, boy. Here we go. Uh-oh. Chicago police. Oh, they no. They admit to raiding the wrong house. Raiding the wrong house at least 21 times. No less than 21 times between the years of 2017 and 2020 according to the Inspector General report that was released earlier this week. Shoddy record-keeping means the true number is unknown, so it could have been more times, is is what they're saying. So the Office of the Inspector General released its final report on Wednesday and concluded that the police have raided this house multiple times without doing basic investigative work contributing to botched raids do they just i mean that's just crazy bro they just pick a house and like let's let's do that one let's just go raid that one i'm not really sure so like one of the examples in the article that they give they bust into this house they humiliate this poor woman she's naked it's a wrong door oh what the in 2019 so they bust on in wow on a faulty tip handcuff her force her to stand in full view of the male officers as they search the home and then realize that it was not the right home a false tip like how would you not be furious over that i would be very furious absolutely but my question is they just anybody can call to make a report of a neighbor that they don't like like oh i think this neighbor's doing something and what then the cops these chicago police are like well let's not do any investigation let's just raid it arrest the person yeah they're like oh we got probable cause and they yeah. just bust on in there because a neighbor so said at least, something like what the hell at least the lady you know she did file a lawsuit and they settled for 2.9 million so she Damn. was paid for her grievance but still just to like have the police bust in and handcuff i mean you're not going to forget that that's pretty fucked you know but she wasn't even uh, the only victim so there was another uh, a Chicago area lawyer, Al Holfield, um, and he has represented 11 different families, all with separate lawsuits saying that the Chicago Police Department pointed guns at their children during botched SWAT raids that had, you know, they were not criminals, they had nothing to do with anything, the police busted on in, guns drawn. I mean, this is insane, dude. That's fucked insane. up, dude. Insane. <laughs> The article goes on to talk about one case where they actually handcuffed an eight-year-old child, and in another case, 17, that's right, 17 police officers busted up into a family's house, guns drawn doing a, during a four-year-old's birthday party. I'd, oh, man, I would be so pissed. I remember reading about Oof. that. I would be so mad. So at least, you know, like some of the families are getting a little bit of recompense for this. Um, there's a, a story here in the article. There was a, in 2018, a family claimed that Chicago police stormed their house, pointed a gun at their three-year-old girl, and they settled out of court for $2.5 million. Why are police breaking into homes and pointing guns at three-year-olds, four-year-olds, handcuffing eight-year-olds? This is insane. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously more than just record keeping, but practices I feel like should be reviewed on going into a a situation like this in force, right? So you have a ton of people and you're pointing weapons at children. You know, like it just, that should not be something that- No, where's the training? Is allowed. Exactly. That's what I'm I'm asking here. Where is the training? What is the review of practices? That's crazy. And the governor, who's Governor Lightfoot is, uh, or Mayor Lightfoot, I believe. 
Yeah, Mayor Lightfoot. So she she needs to get her shit together and figure out what the hell is going on with the police force. Yeah, they need to be pulling this department in, talking about this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it. I know there's, you know, there's complications and there's outstanding situations, but the amount of times that this has happened is absolutely ridiculous. No. I mean, there's another report of another Chicago family who said that officers raided their house three times in four months, allegedly looking for someone that the residents of that home didn't even know. Right. They said that he had uh, had moved. The person they were actually looking for had moved to California like a while back or something like that. And they kept showing up looking for him at this place because it was the last recorded address that this person had on file. How many times does it and take? Just like, no, he's still not here. <laughs> yeah, he's still not here. A month later, you go back. No, he moved. Remember, we yeah. talked about this last time. You raided us exactly, and they just had never bothered to, you know, yeah, they just never. And the tip that they were acting on in that case specifically was from an anonymous informant that said that the person had possessed an unlicensed handgun, and that's all it is. And they're busting into this dude family's home over an unlicensed handgun. You know, it wasn't even like. It wasn't even like he was making threats or, you know, like something where like this person has to be stopped right away. It's like, no, they can probably take some time and track him down. Well, again, you know, it's just a neighbor who calls and makes a report. And without an investigation, they just go there and break in, assuming that the neighbor is telling the truth. The anonymous tip seems like a huge response to some anonymous tip with no surveillance no nothing i mean it's clear that our constitution absolutely means nothing anymore um our first amendment second amendment fourth amendment all being violated on a daily basis it's like these cases there's no warrant and they just go there needs to be a warrant these are unreasonable searches and seizures without warrants so what the fuck absolutely and this isn't isolated this happens all over the country all the time by police officers yeah absolutely insane I mean, remember that trend? It was called swatting. Yes. Yeah. No Fucking different. Horrible. Busting in on a tip. It's just some kid playing games. That's basically all that is. Know? Yeah. That's basically all these are is swatting. Exactly. And they're children, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Four year old birthday party. Like, oh, let's go. Let's go bust that party. Yeah. There's some shenanigans going on there. Boom. Get on the ground. You know what I mean? It's horrible, just, yeah. Man. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. Well, ladies and gentlemen. Grim Trey Portray stories today, but Horrible. thank you for sticking with us. That's it for this week's episode. Trey Portray. So good, man. Glad you brought the stories to light. You know, we got to talk about it. Um, ew, ew. Every week, we bring three stories to talk about. So, absolutely. Right. We talk about them. And hopefully, the listeners are listening talking out there absolutely but okay man let's uh let's get into this then actually before we start i just want to say that scott and i are firm believers in all things ghost and the paranormal one could say that we are firm assed believers oh yeah really doing a lot of squats i I agree 100 percent. always working on the glutes gotta work on the glutes ghosts and glutes that's pretty much my whole life ghosts Ghosts and glutes. That might be the the name of the show. <laughs> Ghosts and glutes. Ghosts and glutes. I like it.
All right, man. So first, first, I wanted to ask you, dude, what do you think ghosts are? Like, what are they? What are they made of? What do they consist of? What is their Mm. chemical makeup? Explain it to us. I like that. I like that. So my take, and this has always kind of been my take, or the thing at least that resonated the most with me, is that ghosts are just the a bit of us that sticks around for whatever reason, doesn't quite break through the next plane of existence gets held up. I don't know. It could be like a loop, like a memory or like a strong emotion. Yeah. It implants on a location for a specific reason and it just hangs around. And I guess if we're getting into the nitty gritty, I guess it, it would just be some kind of leftover signal from like, some electrical discharge of our body, you know, um, that, that's what I think. Uh, and, and I mean, a lot of people could have differing opinions, which is great. Have them. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, I don't know. I don't know. This is just my take on what I think a ghost is. That's a great and take. It's like, it's like a record, just a lost record of something that once was, you know, that makes sense. It makes sense. But it's like, wow, man, why wouldn't we see a lot more ghosts? That's true. That's true. You know, why don't we see a lot of ghosts? But I did hear this one theory that, you know, if we do live in this, like, AI world, like we're in a game, essentially, right? We're all these programmed, I don't know, binary codes, right? Okay. And in in this game, this basically alternate universe, this alternate reality universe that... This matrix, if right. you will. And so the theory is that ghosts are like a glitch in the matrix. So that little program... Right. Like in GTA, you know, you're walking down the streets in GTA, the game, and you just see like the same person just walking around in circles, whatever. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what the ghosts are. They don't even know what they are. They're just a glitch. That's an interesting theory. Yeah, right, right. So like this whole simulation that we're in occasionally has a little hiccup from time to time, you know, just a little. And that's what the ghost is. It's just like a loose a loose signal or just like a an end of programming that wasn't quite completed you know or just never deleted fully if you right will. yeah 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 never deleted fully. yeah that's interesting that's i i like that take yeah that's, but it's that's like i don't know man i don't know because there are so many different variations of ghosts like poltergeists and they throw shit around and make noise and, and you know open cupboards and shit and then there's just like the ghost that just stands there and does what you were saying just repeats the same thing and like yeah it's stuck there so like there's different forms of these things. Exactly. Yeah, you got the loop, you got the actual motion, you got the ones that just show up in photos and stuff like that, you know. Or just touch you. And you're like, I what what was that? Yeah. You know. But who knows, man? Who knows? Whew. But there is an understanding that ghosts, in their classic sense, are made up of ectoplasm, which comes from the ancient Greek meaning outside or plasma, and that which has form. In biology, ectoplasm is actually the non-granulated, elastic outer part of a cell's cytoplasm. The closest thing to reference it is often an amoeba. And you can see videos of amoebas doing some pretty fucking awesome shit, man. Some ectoplasmic contractions on YouTube if you want to be entertained for hours on end. But in spiritualism, ectoplasm was a term first coined in 1894 by Charles Riche, a physical researcher, which means a substance or spiritual energy exteriorized by physical mediums. 
And while it has become widely popular in the minds of millions, there is yet to be solid scientific evidence that it actually exists. But this substance that is ectoplasm is said to be the energy form of ghosts or spirits or demons or whatever, which is entirely separate from the medium themselves. Another physical researcher from the early 1900s, Gustave Guillet, explained it as being very variable in appearance, being sometimes vaporous, sometimes a plastic paste, sometimes a bundle of fine threads or a membrane with swellings or fringes or a fine fabric-like tissue. Even famed British author and physician who birthed the greatness of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle, was a huge proponent of ectoplasm. He described it as a viscous gelatinous substance which appears to differ from every known form of matter in that it could solidify and be used for material purposes. Thanks, Arthur. The whole idea of this spiritualistic ectoplasm really took form through the notion of what's called an ectenic force. What is that? I don't fucking know. But those early researchers were trying to find a physical explanation for numerous reports of telekinesis during seances. And this was first hypothesized by Count Agenor de Gasparin to explain the communications of spirits through the phenomena of table tapping, where the spirits would basically tap once for yes, twice for no, whatever. And he would go on to conduct many experiments with another dude named M. Theory, who was a professor of natural history at the Academy of Geneva. The pair would claim some success in their experiments, but apparently the results of their experiments have never been adequately duplicated or substantiated independently. Speculation would grow, and soon the idea of a fluid or some kind existing within our bodies that could be released with the intention to influence matter outside of ourselves, a psychic force. This would be heavily scrutinized within their own circles, but would later be claimed to be responsible for the levitation of random objects that the physical investigator, W.J. Crawford, witnessed when he attended numerous seances put on by the medium, Kathleen Gallagher. He would later describe this substance as plasma, which could be felt but not seen by the naked eye. Later, though, another physical researcher and physicist, Edmund Edward Fournier d'Albet, would attend some of these seances by Kathleen to see this plasma and all of these objects levitating around the room. But instead of witnessing anything paranormal, he would witness that she had a fine white fabric called muslin between her feet in which she was manipulating nearby objects with. Which, I mean, if you think about it, like it's pretty impressive that she was able to, you know, fool, fool so many yeah. people with just like a fiber that looked kind of like spider's web a little bit. Right. I mean, for so long, like people thought she had control of this stuff. And yeah. I think it's impressive myself. I'd be like, you know what? Take Keep the money. Because you're good. You did a great job. You did a great job. Yeah. You're, they were like uh, David Blaine's. Is that who's that? Who are those? Exactly. David Blaine and that other guy. Yeah. Yeah. They were like um, the Chris, Chris Angel, Angel or yeah. whatever his name is. Yeah. And then I I didn't mention this in this in this uh, episode, but the the Fox sisters. If anyone knows who the Fox sisters yep. were, they were back in the 1800s. They also tricked a lot of people into thinking that these pictures of them were of real ghosts when it was just like cotton. They had like yep. cotton that was hung up and strewn about and they would take pictures of it saying that this cotton in the pictures were ghosts, but they got caught and eventually they were just like, no, it's, it's no, you caught us. Yeah, we were lying. Exactly. They all get caught in the end. 
But in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was a time of heavy paranormal belief. People from all walks of life were very interested and heavily influenced by the art of seances and spiritualism, especially around the time of the Civil War. People like Houdini and President Franklin Pierce and his wife, Jane Pierce, as well as Mary Todd Lincoln and her husband, President Abraham Lincoln, and some others, of course. I mean, they were all pretty interested in spiritualism and what it could possibly accomplish. And it's fairly well known that Lincoln was pretty into seances and it's reported that he would call on the spirits to help guide him through all the bullshit going on during his presidency. It's said that Mary Todd, his wife, hired famed medium Nettie Colburn Maynard to sit with Honest Abe and call on the spirits to advise him if he should sign the Emancipation Proclamation or not. And obviously, the spirits told him to dip that quill deep in some ink. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all saw the outcome. Exactly. Right? So we know what they must have said. Yeah. But dip it. wouldn't that be so interesting to be in a time where that was something that people would gather for and shut the, the walls and they would all sit there and ask a spirit something and everyone would sit and listen. And I just feel like that doesn't happen anymore. No, I think we should go back to that. Would have been fascinating. We should definitely start doing that. What, like table tapping and yeah, you know. where's my muslin? <laughs> so all that shit's pretty interesting, right? But Scott, you've heard about Lincoln's dream, right? Oh, I'm gonna be honest. I might need some background information on that subject. Yeah, no problem. So in 1865, after a few years of seances, Lincoln confided in his friend Ward Hill Lehman that he was in the East Room of the White House and there were the sounds of grieving people as he noticed a corpse in the center of the room. Lincoln said he asked a soldier that was standing guard who the dead person was, to which the soldier replied, the president, he was killed by an assassin. And at that moment, Lincoln is said to have awakened. And on April 11th, 1865, he told his friend that he was strangely annoyed by the dream. And 10 days after the dream, on April 14th, Lincoln would attend the play Our American Cousin, which was just a hoot and a holler at Ford's Theater, where he was allegedly shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth. But it is said that his ghost would often visit Mary Todd, his wife, until her own death. And it still haunts the White House to this very day. I know I'd be definitely, definitely a little bit, I don't want to say perturbed, but concerned, maybe, if I had a dream that was that specific and then suddenly, like, not oh, too man. long after that, someone was like, hey, do you want to go? You know, like, suggests the circumstances that I dreamed. Right. I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to stay home. <laughs> you guys go have fun. Like, do what you're going to yeah, do. I'm but Stay back, bake some biscuits. And you're not going to link in me, man. Yeah, man. You know? Get away from me, John Wilkes. Yeah, get out of here. They're like, what? They're like, what? What are you talking yeah. about? So regardless of who you were in the day, if you didn't believe in spiritualism, you sure as hell heard about it. It was everywhere. Magazine ads, billboards, first day orientation for the new job, pre-packed school lunches, even snail mail. Fascinating. It was popular in all of Western culture, but the idea that we can connect and communicate with spirits from the afterlife goes back many thousands of years, many, many thousands of years. But in the more modern version of spiritualism, the more that people heard about it, the more that people paid closer attention. And the attention was helped quite a lot by the utilization of photography by all these spiritualists who hoped to capture physical evidence. And while some may have caught something unexplainable, the majority of the photographs would only work against their cause. The Society for Psychical Research began to really investigate these mediums and spiritualists and quickly began to weed out a ton of the fraudulent actors. 
photographs would reveal that these people were cutting out pictures from magazines, such as faces, and pinning them to string with a bit of gauze and cotton and dangling them in the air while tapping their foot on the table. <laughs> one such cu- yeah, <laughs> one such cutout by the magician Carlos Maria de Heredia had the letters Le Miro on the back of it, proving that it was cut out from the French magazine of the same name. And it would be found out that she was using cutouts of faces of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> King Ferdinand of Bulgaria, the French President Raymond Poincaré, and actress Mona Delza. And they would just be pinned to some puffy cotton stuff and draped from the ceiling with a small fan on it to let it move a little bit. Jeez. Yeah, pictures would be taken. But yeah, I mean, all that might be a little embarrassing, just a little bit. But listen to this. In 1922, the Christiana University in Norway would send some people to investigate a Danish medium named Einar Nielsen. Initially, the Danish Society of Psychical Research issued their own report of him, which praised him highly for his abilities to communicate with the dead. This seemed a little ironic to the Norwegians, being that the Danish gave nothing but favorable reviews for a Danish medium. So they'd go on to attend his seances and they soon discover that all of his ectoplasm was totally fake. Oh, man. Isn't that always how it goes? They're like, oh, yeah. Check yeah. it out. We're going to check it out. Oh, he's full of shit. Fake. <laughs> fake. Damn What's it. this ectoplasm? Fake. I bet they were disappointed. They were. The new reviews by the university in Norway put the spotlight on the spurious Danish reporter, which would end up becoming a bit of a media storm. And... It was a blow to the Danish Society of Psychical Research, which tarnished the group's notoriety. But that's not the worst of it. Oh, I'm... What? Okay. I should... I want to hear about this. According to Brady Brower in his 2010 book, Unruly Spirits, The Science of Psychic Phenomenon in Modern France, Einar Nielsen was further put to shame when he was caught hiding the ectoplasm that he was using for his seances up his Hershey's Kiss. Whoa! And this... Yeah... And this was obviously a deeper punch of the rumper than the last time he was called out. Oh, God damn it. A deep punch of uh, the rumper. Yeah, see what you did there, man. And then, in 1932, the leader of his own spiritualism group, Jos Karstensen, would write a pamphlet which he published far and wide that exposed all of Nielsen's dirty tricks. Einar kept working as a medium until his death, but was never considered to be credible after having found he kept his ectoplasm in his tart. I mean... That's fair, though. I, I That's not going to inspire, you know, people to come and want to be a part of <laughs> what you got going on. They're just going to be like, nope, I'm not paying money for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you'd have a very, very small and precise fan base. Like, <laughs> yeah, the just die hard. I heard a guy who keeps his ectoplasm. Yeah, keeps his ectoplasm in his butt. Oh, that's a guy I need to go got to see. see that. I'll pay some coppers yeah. for that for sure. Hell yeah. Or we could buy loaves of bread for our family, you know. Yeah, yeah let's, let's go. Let's go to this medium. Let's go to the tart plasm <laughs> guy. And there's this other one too, Mina Crandon. She was a famous medium who could produce ectoplasm during her seances. During one such seance, Mina produced a small ectoplasmic hand that came out of her stomach and waved all over the place. And remember, seances must be done in very dim light because ectoplasm cannot be seen in light. But sometime later on, some biologists would study that nasty little ectoplasmic hand and would find that it was made of a piece of animal liver that was cut to shape. And it turned out 
she couldn't eat it quick enough before they were able to brighten the lights. Oh, man, that is commitment to the act, though. You got to give her she had some balls for that one because, yeah, you know, like you're going to eat liver every time that you do this seance <laughs> like, woo. Yeah, they're just like That's turn on the lights to quick. the craft. Yeah, turn it on. She's like, <laughs> like and it's their this. lamp, so you have to go light the lamp and turn the lamp thing up. And yeah, she's just over there like trying to eat this liver like really as quick as possible. She's like acting as she's retching, but she's like throwing down this liver. Yeah, every single time. Every like, time. Damn, where was she getting the liver? That's my question. That's a good where was she getting the liver? question. Well, her career ended, and Walter Franklin Prince, the American parapsychologist, described that case as. The most ingenious, persistent, and fantastic complex of fraud in the history of psychic research. I mean, yeah, yeah. though. Yeah, yes. Pretty, pretty, pretty on point. And there was a book that exposed all the medium's tricks called Revelations of a Spirit Medium in 1922. It was a heavy hitter and attacked hundreds, if not thousands, of spiritualists, which is why when the book first came out, every copy of the book was bought by spiritualists and burned. Oh, Take that, they said. Yeah. Take that. And another medium was exposed when her technique of ectoplasm turned out to be nothing more than swallowing cheesecloth and then regurgitating it. Ooh. Rough. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Swallowing yeah. a cheesecloth? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not soft. No. Maybe it was a little bit back then. I don't know. Doubtful. But because of all this negative exposure and being cast as frauds and snake charmers, the interest in spiritualism and doing seances made a rapid decline in the public sentiment. The public sentiment would, however, pick back up in the years to come. So, Scott, what is a ghost? With your best surmising, explain to us what a ghost is. I'm going to just, I'm going to stick with my original answer, dude. I've already <laughs> answered this once. You'll probably make me answer it again. <laughs> Maybe we're stuck in a loop. But I think it's a loop or an emotional memory left behind. I don't think it's a glitch in the matrix, and it's certainly not swallowing a cheesecloth or hiding ectoplasm in your ass. It's definitely <laughs> neither of those things. I concur. But I concur. I'm going to stick with my original definition for now, okay? All right. Just for now. So... This is from the Oxford. A ghost is an apparition of a dead person which is believed to appear or become manifest to the living, typically as a nebulous image. What do you think about that? Okay. Okay. It's from the Oxford. Um, well, I can't disagree. It's the Oxford. I mean, the apparition part, because I guess we both, you know, I agree with the apparition. You see this thing nebulous also got to agree there you know i'd say that's you know i could buy that yeah I could get behind that let's go on a ghost usually takes this ectoplasmic energy form essentially a fluid shell of their old self which is what people typically see right many ghosts are reported to appear like a person but sort of see-through and they're ephemeral meaning that they only appear for a short period of time yeah they kind of flutter on in i mean i'm i'm not hating this description you're not hating it but well is there a but i they're full of shit yeah yeah right they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> god the oxford <laughs> man who wrote that thing no go on i'm sorry i apologize i'm not trying to hold up the show here. all right you go ahead continuing john kachuba a ghost researcher wrote a book called ghost hunters back in 2007 and wrote Einstein proved that all the energy of the universe is constant and that it can neither be created nor destroyed. So what happens to that energy when we die? If it cannot be destroyed, 
it must then, according to Dr. Einstein, be transformed into another form of energy. What is that new energy? Could we call that new creation a ghost? So what do ghosts do, Scott? What are they, what are they purported to do? What is their purpose? Well, I think at this point, right, like in society's development, most people think ghosts haunt. They don't leave. They are around. I mean, they just kind of hang out. <laughs> they just kind of hang out, like man. the layperson's definition, though. I'm not trying to get fancy like the Oxford, but they just kind of hang out, dude. And they, I don't know, they freak some people out. And other people are like, yeah, I got a ghost in here, but it's not a big deal. So they just yeah. kind of hang around and chill. Yeah, some people like they take their perception of it when they see a ghost is like more spiritual and like positive. Yeah. Other people see ghosts and it's like a negative demonic feeling and then they hate it and then it gets evil. Yeah, right. They're like, oh, and they want to yeah. get away. Some ghosts. You know? Yeah, they, some ghosts just sit there, stand there. Some ghosts look like family members and some ghosts just walk through walls and disappear. And yeah, it's weird, man. The, the things that I've seen were like not see-through they were full-on form like a like you it was solid you know you see how i put my arm up solid solid yeah like a dick touch it whoa dude bro fuck this is a kid show yeah man there's kids listening to this yeah sorry <laughs> well, we don't really know what ghosts do, man. We don't. We don't know. Some people who've seen ghosts say that the ghosts give them a good fright. Others say that feel calmness about them when they see them. Others yet throw water at them and ridicule their name and demand that they return to where their wretched souls came from, which it doesn't always turn out well. And some people report visual manifestations and the displacement of objects, the moving in of objects in real time, the appearance of strange lights. There are many reports of sounds, such as knocking, tapping, footsteps, and the faint sound of muffled speech. Some people report vivid laughter or screams. And some people report the sound of musical instruments, which would be fucking great. And sometimes they just make a lot of noise and break a lot of shit. Those damned poltergeists. Yeah, like noisy ghosts, right? I mean, that's that's what that means in German, right? Noisy ghost? Yeah, yes, yeah, noisy ghost. But it's generally understood or agreed upon that when a person dies, someone we love, for instance, their soul or human spirit separates from the physical body and becomes more of an ethereal presence or a plasma such as ectoplasm, which can be transferable through solid structures, which is why we often hear reports of ghosts moving through walls. That is an oft quoted description of the ghosts that people have, quote unquote, seen is that they easily move through substances that you know, a solid-bodied person amongst the living would not be able to achieve. You know, it'd be really hilarious if, like, you actually saw a ghost and it was trying to, it was went to walk through a wall and it just like if it just couldn't, yeah, do it. it just hit his head. It's like, oh, what, what the hell? <laughs> this, this never happened before. They told me not to go this way. <laughs> poor ghost, poor ghost, man. Totally. But it is believed by many that there is the world of the living and the world of the dead. Some call these differences realms or dimensions. In our everyday life, we inhabit a space of three dimensions as three-dimensional creatures, but our retinas only allow us to see in two dimensions. And in fact, scientists on the government's payroll have been trying to figure this all out for decades. They have come to a theory which resonates through much religious and spiritual literature throughout the years, that there are 12 dimensions, 12 spatial dimensions. CERN, the European Council for Nuclear Research, has been at the forefront of figuring out how and why the universe works. They have been conducting studies since at least the 1940s or 50s to try to figure out the overlap of the physical and the spiritual worlds. 
they have been forming theoretical frameworks relating to the string theory and the fundamental forces of nature that govern the universe, which includes the theory of ghostly apparitions. But even within CERN, there are dissenters of so-called ghosts. Brian Cox, a professor who works at CERN, says he has dismissed the existence of the paranormal world entirely through his research. He says that ghosts cannot exist simply because in order for them to exist, as is generally understood, and to interact with matter, i.e. living humans, us, that they would need to be made up of a type of matter that CERN and their large Hadron Collider would have discovered by now, according to him. His whole argument on the matter, if ghosts are real or not, is that, quote, we would have found them by now. Oh, damning, damning. Just like, I don't know, that that's just kind of entitled to me, right? You got the scientist, he's got research behind him, he's got, you know, doctor, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, if ghosts were around, we would have found them. How come we haven't found the exact starter of the universe? You know, like, how come we haven't found... There's many things that we haven't There's a found lot of shit. Yet, doesn't mean that it's not there. And You know what I mean? At the sa- on the same page here, just because they're working with this large Hadron Collider, doing their little experiments and whatnot... How do we know that is the framework to find ghosts? Maybe to find ghosts is a completely different framework from that, you know? So he's re- he's resting his whole you know, proposition on, on just the fact that he works at CERN and exactly. their specific research in a specific area. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's not that's not what is going to tell you that ghosts are real or not. But that's entitled. Yeah. There, I mean, the, the Hadron... Um, the Hadron Collider is a big particle accelerator, and they're trying to break down atoms, molecules, to like, or electrons, I should say, yeah. into the smallest pieces that they can they can get. And they still haven't achieved going smaller past a certain point. Like, so they they don't even know what's there. They don't know. Maybe ghosts are made out of that. I'm just saying, if that's what your argument's going to be, I feel like there's some legitimate counterpoints to that. Oh, but anyways, tons, tons, I, digress. I digress. Something like, uh, how about Neil deGrasse Tyson, okay? The famed comical scientist that people tend to love and adore and trust. Well, he pressed Brian Cox on his assertion and asked him, So if I understand what you just declared, you just asserted that CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research, disproved the existence of ghosts. To this, Brian Cox responded, yes. <laughs> and to clarify, uh, Brian is only going off of the LHC's ability to read the smallest, most minute bursts of energy that is said to be created when particles collide. How he correlates that to whether ghosts are real or not is beyond me and beyond all who know that ghosts do exist. And another famed comical scientist that women and men tend to bust nuts over is Bill Nye. And what does Bill Nye think about ghosts? This is what he says. Scott, why don't you go said and uh, go ahead and say what he says? <laughs> this is an actual quote. Fuck them, fuck them all to hell. Screw them all. I don't care. That's that's from that's straight from Bill Nye. Straight from Bill Nye, dude. Bill Nye, fuck them, fuck them all to hell. Screw them all. I don't care. Bill, Whoa, Bill. Sorry they canceled your show. Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah, chill, bro. Get some water. No, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. (laughs) He did say, however, that he does not believe in ghosts at all. He thinks they're all garbly gook. Well, you know, people are entitled to their opinions. Doesn't mean that they are true or false. Absolutely. 
But real quick, we need to put some balance in here, okay? In 2021, a poll was conducted of 1,000 Americans. 41% of them said that they do believe in ghosts. People Magazine, shout out to People. Thanks for all the awards and the mentions. Thanks, People Magazine. They (laughs) they came out with a similar article the same year saying that 50% of Americans believe in ghosts, while 39% believe in aliens from other planets and 27% believe in Bigfoot. And in Canada, 46% believe in ghosts. Okay. You know, honestly, that's that's fairly high numbers for this study that they collected. Well, I mean, what we're seeing over and over is at least half of Americans believe in ghosts. I mean, it's definitely demonstrating that even though it's been quote-unquote disproved time and time again, people still believe. It's not going to change anything. People believe. And you know what? And I'm just going to offer this now. Maybe ghosts exist simply because we believe they exist. Mm, putting the energy out there. I want you to chew on that. Chew on that. Which, which side note here, a lot of poltergeist activity is thought to just be a lot of teenage angst, typically in girls, where they just get so pent up in those teenage years and you're just like, eh, everything sucks. <laughs> and there's so much energy going on, the negative energy. And you know, the theory is that all of this energy is just shot out and it makes other things happen because everything is energy. Everything has energy around it, right? We're, we're like submersed in energy. We're all electrical. So what do you think about that? I could see it. I mean, I know I've myself in the tender teenage years, I have put much angst out into the world. Actually, I'm surprised that that angst didn't push back, honestly, with the amount that I was pouring out there. But maybe it's just how I channeled it. I don't know. It just depends. It could but, be. Yeah, it has. it's individual. Yeah. I can totally see it. But of course, ghosts are still heavily kept within the confines of folklore, despite the large numbers of hardened believers. And sure, television and streaming shows such as Ghost Adventures and all the other ones who purport to have caught undeniable proof of the existence of ghosts are for entertainment purposes. But this is not to say that they have not caught undeniable proof, because I'm sure they have. You know, I'm sure they caught something. Absolutely. That's just like legit. I mean, you know, not all of it can be faked. No, and maybe, maybe like maybe all of it can. they get this little blip of something kind of hard to build a profitable show around a millisecond of blip yes also yes right i mean you need more to, to hook and that show's audience. been going on for like 25 years it's just yeah yeah it's insane tough business model though That's yeah tough dude. well let's go back to antiquity way back in time uh, let me ask you a question scott are there ghosts in the bible as in does the bible contain passages that reference ghosts as we know them today I would say that there are appearances in the Bible, but largely these appearances weren't considered to be ghosts as much as they were considered to be an actual physical representation of the person that they were referring to. So yes and no, I would say. Okay, so through the research I've conducted, I found that the Bible does indeed reference ghosts and familiar spirits. And it also warns people against having anything to do with them and says that they are basically evil. Scott, what's your thought on that? Yes, well, that that all stems from certain translations. But familiar spirits are another word for the Bible's demons. So if you're talking about demons specifically, then yes, it makes sense that the Bible would be cautioning people against consorting with said demons. So that's just specific to that. You know what's crazy? Um, what's the author? Zachariah Sitchin? Zechariah Sitchin? Yep. 
he uh when he was translating the Sumerian text and he found like mentions of like you know uh Anki and Enlil and Marduk and all those uh what demiurges demigods way back in the day well Marduk is mentioned in the Bible and that's really interesting yes it's also worth noting and this is important that Zechariah's uh translations a lot of his translations were not correct um, according to experts in those fields so i'm just going to throw that out there i'm not going to say which ones were and which ones weren't because i am not an expert myself i have heard but that it has been brought to light that some of those translations are just his own add-ins um well see that's what, the text what i actually said see i was thinking about this the other day about how we've translated all those old texts Oh yeah, it's like and a it's giant like, game of telephone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like how do totally. we know what they're fucking saying, man? Like totally. those symbols could have meant something completely different back in the day than exactly. they, you know, and over generations they change meanings and everything's just been changed so much for so long. That's a great point. Oh, man, it's, it's an interesting sidebar, but but yes, I I agree with you there. Agree with you there. Yeah, well okay. Back to ghosts. They're old as fuck, okay? Ghosts are old as fuck. In fact, in October of 2021, a whopping two years ago, you remember that shit? (laughs) Two years ago. Barely. Yeah. (laughs) Barely remember that. Well, an article was published online by the Smithsonian that said that a 3,500-year-old Babylonian tablet was found, which they think could be the earliest known depiction of a ghost. The archaeologists think that it is part of a guide to the exercising of ghosts. The piece is small enough to fit in the palm of a hand and has detailed instructions on how to get rid of all those pesky ghosts that linger around. The directions call for the person to make a pair of figurines, one man and one woman. Then they are to make two vessels of beer. And at sunrise, they need to speak some ritualistic words that call on the Mesopotamian god, Shamash, to take those unwanted ghosts to the underworld. Simple as that. Easy enough. And Irving Finkel, a curator at the London Museum where the item is housed, says that whoever created the piece was a master craftsman who knew his shit, and that the tablet was most likely kept in a magician's library or in a temple, giving it great importance. But at any rate, the belief in ghosts is deeply rooted in every culture all throughout the world, all throughout time, from the ancient Sumerians to the Romans to the Greeks to the Mongolians to the Akkadians to the Sardom of Russia to the Olmec to the Maya to the Inca to the Aboriginal peoples in Australia, to literally every fucking geographical location all over the earth from the beginning of human thought to present day. Ghosts, in their many forms, exist in literally every culture. And that is... So what does that say? That is exactly my point. That what if ghosts exist simply because we believe that they do? And that's a point that I'll keep coming back to because our ability to make something so is so strong in our world that if we put effort into something, largely, like much of the time, we can manifest that thing that we're putting effort into. And that's been proven time and time again. So I'll just keep coming back to that. I'm going to keep coming back to that. Yeah. Yeah, like the tulpa. Um, it's a concept originally from the Tibetan Buddhism, you know, found in later traditions of mysticism and the paranormal of a materialized being or thought form, typically in human form. It's created through spiritual practice and intense concentration. That. So, what do you think about that? Like, it's a uh, you think it into existence. Exactly. That's exactly what you I'm create saying. Create a tulpa. That's exactly what I'm saying. And that's a real thing. And it, like you said, and you know, it stems from Tibetan Buddhism. 
And there are some really crazy stories, man. I, yeah, let's not get into tulpas because I can go on for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, now let's begin with a couple of the earlier instances of famous historians writing about ghosts in antiquity. The Roman author and statesman Pliny the Younger recorded one of the first notable accounts of ghosts in one of his early letters during the first century A.D. He wrote of a specter of a man with a long scraggly beard who rattled chains and was actively haunting an old house in Athens, Greece. He said that the house was large and spacious and was in a great location, yet the house wasn't occupied by anyone and nobody would dare to live inside of it. The locals all said that the house was haunted and that the rattling of chains could be heard as well as the sounds of metal striking metal. He wrote that some of the locals would investigate the sounds from time to time and once they ventured inside the house, they'd be met with the apparition of an old man with a long ruffled white beard, empty sockets for eyes, heavy chains lashed around his ankles and wrists. Wow. That, uh, that would be quite the bold description. I mean, walking in and seeing that, multiple people are reporting that. Yeah. Interesting. As it came to be, the original owner of the house could not stand the ghost incessant noise, which is understandable, and put the home up for sale at a much lower price than it was worth. Then, one day, a Stoic philosopher named Athenodorus Canaanites made a visit to Athens and had randomly stumbled upon an announcement about the sale of the house. So Athenodorus is looking at the property listing and saw that nobody was putting up an offer, which he thought was really strange considering how nice and cheap it was. He became a little intrigued and began to ask the locals what was up. They tell him that the place was extremely haunted, which only made the Stoic more interested, and he would go on to purchase the property. Athenodorus immediately put up his little writing space at the front of the house, and upon nightfall, he lit his oil lamp and began to write. At some point during the night, as the man was writing away, he began to hear the faint sounds of the rattling of chains. He refrained from pausing his work to look around for the source of the noise, basically pretending that he wasn't interested in what the ghost was doing. And I think we've all been there, right? Right? You're lying in bed, about to, trying to sleep, and you're alone, and you hear some weird-ass sounds which makes you hyper-focused on it, which in turn makes you more frightened, but you just act like you're sleeping instead of bringing attention to yourself because you don't want to take any crazy chances of being attacked by some horny ghost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we've all been there. Yeah. You just, yeah, you're like, this is not, you're like, this is not happening. This is not happening. Anyway, Athenodorus ignored the ghost and kept writing. But the ghost became more incessant with his chain rattling, trying to get the man's attention. Finally, once the noise was basically right in front of him, he looked up and saw the old man specter with chains. The ghost looked at him and raised his finger at him. But rather than react in a fearful way, the old stoic simply raised his hand and gestured for the ghost to wait while he finished his writings. It's said that the ghost respected his wishes and patiently waited. When he was done, he returned his gaze to the ghost, who then beckoned him to follow him. The stoic stood and grabbed his oil lamp and followed the ghost outside to the yard. At some point, the ghost quickly faded away, and Athenodorus then put a marker where he last saw the ghost with a pile of grass and leaves, then retired for the night. The next day, he awoke early and sought some assistance from the locals to excavate the grounds, which they did. And there they'd find the buried skeleton of a man bound in chains who was apparently tortured to death. Upon the finding, the skeleton was removed from the location and given a righteous burial. And from that day forward, the house was free from hauntings. Ooh, I love that. I just love how that lands. I know. It's good. 
I mean, they have this proof of concept, right? All these people are reporting this this specific circumstance. They dig in underneath and they find the circumstance has been there all along. Like this thing that people have been seeing. Can you imagine? I think that's wonderful. Can you imagine? Whew. Remember when we talked about that Afghanistan, the Afghanistan ghosts, and uh, they were basically on just a field of oh, bones? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, that was a long time ago, yeah. but yeah, I remember they that. They were digging trenches, finding bones, and then all that weird ghost shit started happening. Like, Oh, yeah. All right, so what do you say we head to the Middle Ages, down there in medieval Europe, which is said to have lasted from the 5th to the 15th century AD, one of the best periods of time to be alive? <laughs> that's quite a claim man yeah plague let's go back to those times <laughs> yeah dude people are dying of consumption <laughs> yeah and dancing dancing to their deaths it would be during this time that the peoples would basically separate two different types of ghosts one type were the souls of the dead who were said to have a purpose for returning to the realm of the living and the other type were demons Dastardly demons were said to have one purpose, to torment and tempt the living. The only way to tell the two apart was to demand to know their overall intent with the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what they say? Don't fuck up with the Jesus. Is that the from the Big Lebowski you're talking about? Yes. <laughs> yes. Classic. Classic film. That guy, oh man, he oh, played man, that part so it. well, too. Movie. I loved that part. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. Poor Donnie, dude. Poor Donnie. Great character. No, I love that guy. <laughs> Anyways, during those times, you didn't deserve it was generally it. believed that most ghosts were souls that were trapped in purgatory, which was or is a stopping point for souls after physical death. It was or is a process of purification before the final judgment. It's said that the penance the souls would receive was more or less related to the sins that they committed in life. In one famous case, the ghost of a man was condemned to bite off bits of his own tongue to chew on and swallow for an unspecified amount of time, which time, as we all know, is just a man-made construct, right? Yeah, it's all made I up. mean, like the original Moonland. Events, events are happening and progressing all around us, but time is our human designation that we've assigned to it. Now that we're vagina deep in the Middle Ages, I'll recount the story of a poor old laborer in Revolch. Rival. Uh, How do you say that? Rival? R rival? I would guess rival. Rival? In rival, England. Who was walking back to the town which he lived with a fat sack of beans upon his back after his horse became injured and wasn't able to hold the weight. The man had been walking for some great deal of distance before coming to a horse that was standing on his hind hooves while holding the front hooves up in the air. The man was frightened and begged the horse to no. do him no harm. No. And when the man spoke Please, no. these wincing words, the no. horse transformed into a pile of hay <gasps> with some sort of light emanating from the center. The man was absolutely shocked, and he cried out to God to keep such evil away from him and his beans. And at that moment, the pile of hay then transformed into the ghostly shape of a man. The ghost itself, it wasn't frightening. It was actually very kind, and it spoke to the man. It even asked if he could carry the weight of the beans instead of the laborer, and the laborer was more than pleased. From there, the ghost carried the beans for the man all the way to a distant stream, all the while conversing with the man 
about everyday problems like the potholes in the roads and the rising taxes and the financial system and the tyrannical government conducting unconstitutional surveillance within factions that worship Moloch while sacrificing children for their adrenochrome and their saturated blood. Common things. I don't know about that last part. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Don't know about that last part, but I was with you until the adrenochrome. We'll skip it. We'll skip that last part. <laughs> All right. And so once they reached the stream, the ghost told the man it could not pass over it. And right then, the man was shocked upon realizing that the sack of beans was again on his own back. And the ghost was gone. Ooh, the beans. beans. I love it. I love it. I think that's great. You got to have the beans in the story. Otherwise, it's just it's nothing there. There's no character there. No, I, I feel like the beans are like the, the cornerstone. Of yes, that, of that tale. That is the cornerstone of that tale. It's spooky stuff, though, right? Absolutely. Very spooky. Very spooky. All right. So this next one comes to us from a tiny village, which is settled in the region of Ornay in Normandy, France. This story is pretty wild, and in contextual imagery, reminds me of an Hieronymus Bosch painting. Oh, sweet! I love me some Hieronymus. Let's get into the story, which comes to us from an 11th to 12th century Benedictine monk named. Orderic Vitalis. Orderic was a chronicler and a friend of another priest named Wakalin. Waka Waka what? Wakalin? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I'm unsure of his first name. Could have been Christopher, but who knows? <laughs> oh, so... yeah. Christoph <laughs> Wakalin. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Probably was, man. <laughs> <laughs> So, Orderic would chronicle the life of his friend, Wachlin, and the story we're about to go over is widely thought to be the first European ghost story that was ever written down and survived to tell about. In the small village of Bonneville, priest Wachlin would serve the people through the church of St. Aubin of Anjou. He was a busy priest with much to do and many confessions to take. Not only that, he was the go-to guy for anything, literally anything. Oh, kind of like Carl over on 43rd, that homeless dude. Yeah, So yes. he's got like seven yeah. or eight of those old school TVs. You're like, damn, how do you even where does he, bring does those he, things along with you uh, every day? Where does he get so them? So heavy. Yeah, dude. And that stash of Pokemon cards he has, he's got all sorts of random shit. Bro, I was over there like two weeks ago, and he had like 40-gallon fish tank. Full of fish, no less. Like dead fish? No, dude. No, it was a fully functioning, I'm talking saltwater tank, right? So you got the tank on the top, had a tank on the bottom, working pump, he had it hooked up to like a car battery or something. Damn. There had to be at least yeah, he... six or seven different kinds of coral in there. I mean, that he said he started them all from like little polyps, you know, and then they expanded in his tank. He like snuck them in from, so I don't even know when, because I mean, they were fully mature coral. And then there's like little sea fish like swimming in and out. And there's like pirate ships and, you know, those wavy plants that don't oh, look like yeah. they're real, but they're actually real. And then, I mean, of course, there was the sucker fish, right? Everyone's got a sucker fish in the tank. Just paste it up right there. And I'm like, oof. I don't get it. What's up with this guy, man? But Where does he get this stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where he gets all that. But He just sits all the stuff up on the, on the 43rd corner and he just, where does he get it? How does he transport it? It's it astounds me. It astounds me, dude. But yeah, he's got he's got it going on over there, man. Everything he's he'd got ever the need. Full setup. Yeah, yeah. He's got warm oldie, uh, old English forties, vaccine passports, cat litter. I don't get it. I mean, good for him though. He seems to be. It seems sure, to be yeah. going well for him. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the month of January, in the wonderful year of 1091, Priest Walkelin was, sum- was summoned from his post at the church to make a short visit with a sickly man who happened to live at the furthest end of the parish that the priest served. The visit, it went well. Nothing was much cause of alarm. And Priest Walkelin began his walk again and headed back home <laughs> in the darkness. In the vast expanse of distance between the sickly man's house and his own was completely uninhabited by man. But the priest wasn't afraid of anything. This dude battled demons in hand-to-hand combat. He was into some shit. Today, he would be considered the Randy Savage of priesthood, bro. <laughs> Macho man, Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. Too hot to handle. Too cold to hold. Don't buy any unripe bananas. Yeah, because you won't live to eat them. Oh, my God. That's a great one. <laughs> Randy Savage, dude. I'm the tower of power, too sweet to be sour. He just sits there and writes poetry, man. That dude That's was all the he shit. writes poetry, dude. Oh, he was he was a, a poet of our time for Fuck sure. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this guy Walkland, he feared nothing, man. And as he was walking along, he suddenly heard the tremendous sounds of a stampede coming from the darkness. He instantly equated the sounds to be coming from the army of Robert de Bellamy, who he quickly thought were on their way. To attack the castle, of course. Robert de Bellamy, though, was said to be known for his brutality, and Orderic Vitalis would actually write in great length about Robert, including the following Grasping and cruel, an implacable persecutor of the Church of God and the poor, unequaled for his iniquity in the whole Christian era, as well as the tyrant who had disturbed the land and was preparing to add still worse crimes to his many offenses of plundering and burning. It is said that Robert de Bellamy was the inspiration for the legend of Robert the Devil, which is about a Norman knight that finds out that he is the son of Satan. Upon finding out that he's the spawn of Satan, he decided that he'd live up to the name and lived a life of adulterous sin. But not all was lost, and he would eventually repent and essentially be born again. So Priest Wachelin took pause in his stride when he heard the thunderous sounds approaching him. Not wanting to be confronted by a potentially dangerous and threatening army, he quickly sought out some shelter to hide behind as they passed. With the aid of moonlight, he spotted a small group of trees out in a field and wasted no time in scurrying over to them. But before he could reach the trees, an enormous man, as in a giant in every sense of the word, who was armed with an equally large club, suddenly shouted for him to stop where he was. The priest, who was never afraid of a thing under the sun, instantly found himself shaken uncontrollably. The giant man stood next to the small priest who stood in silence, and the two waited as the rumbling troops passed by. Wachlin watched as a very large number of people began to pass by, who were all carrying all sorts of items upon their heads. We're talking furniture, stacks of clothes, animals such as sheep, and other ridiculous things that people don't generally carry on their heads. It was described as if hundreds of robbers were in the process of pillaging a village. Wachlin's eyes lit up when he realized that many of the passing troops happened to resemble those of his neighbors and friends that had recently died. He also realized that as they passed, they gave out shouts of the most excruciating suffering as they were being tormented for all of the sins they committed. Once they all passed by... They were followed by a number of corpse bearers for the occasion, who the giant then joined as they marched away. There were said to be as many as 50 beers, each of which was carried by two bearers. Fosters. Australian for beers. Bro. 
Foster's is gross, man. Australians don't even like it. I know. They're like pissed that it's associated with them because it's kind of nasty. Yeah, and guess what? What? It was created by two Americans who moved to Melbourne from New York in 1886. It wasn't even brewed in Australia. It's brewed in a number of other countries, but not in Australia. And the company isn't even owned by Americans or Australians. It's owned by the Japanese brewing group Asahi Group Holdings. Oh, no. Isn't that ridiculous? I actually didn't know that, so my mind is blown. And full confession here, I'm just going to set the record straight. I totally used to drink Foster's back in the day because it's cheap and you get a lot of it. In those big cans, right? They always have the bigger cans. Exactly. You just get those massive cans. It just cans. tastes like garbage. All right. At least I'm... I know. It wasn't... It's just... Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't good no. at all. Anyway, dude. A bia, in this case, is basically a coffin or a movable platform that dead bodies are carried on to be cremated or buried. But on top of all these bias were groups, just overflowing groups of little persons and all these little persons were described as having smaller bodies while their heads were as large as barrels. That's a quote. Imagine that. What were they looking at? I just like, imagine no, that. I can't imagine that. Just imagine this that. just sounds ridiculous. And then Priest Walkelin noticed two Ethiopians carrying an immense trunk of a tree to which a poor wretch was rudely bound, who in his tortures filled the air with fearful cries of anguish. For a horrible demon sat on the same trunk and goaded his loins and back with red-hot spurs until the blood streamed from them. Then, Wachlin realized that the poor wretch was the assassin of a fellow priest two years earlier, a man named Steve. Oh, Steve. Steve. Yeah, I remember that guy. I guess the name he's generally known by is Stephen the Priest, but you know, the homies called him Steve. Oh, they totally called him Steve back then. So after Steve passed by, along came a crowd of women that seemed to never end. Just waves of women. But they were riding on horses in female fashion. That's a quote. Whatever that's supposed to mean. But they were seated in saddles that were lined with red-hot nails that stuck into their bare buttocks and lady parts. Priest Wachlin watched on with some degree of primal interest and some degree of godly shame. But he had watched as the horses trotted, which caused the women to raise from the saddles and fall back into the nails. What was going on here? This just, just, I don't have any frame of reference. For, this is crazy. We'll get to it. As the tortured women rode by in agony, amidst the cries, they would shout out, Whoa! Whoa! And hence, <laughs> forthcoming, and were hence forthcoming with their many confessions for their sinful transgressions committed while alive among men. In this group of wailing women, Wachlin recognized more than a few noble ladies. He also witnessed that the donkeys and mules that they had with them held the quote-unquote women's litters of others who were still alive. So I think that means they're talking these women were adulterous. They had babies out of wedlock with other men. And so on these donkeys and mules were all these, what would they call them back then? Bastards. Bastards, yeah. The unwanted. Bastard children, yeah. yeah. So I think that's what that's talking about. This is terrible. And by this point, Priest Wachlin is dug in. He's entrenched. He is fixated on this procession and can't wait to see what comes next. Just like you. You ready to see what comes next? Let's see it. The next group that came by consisted of a number of monks and clergy, with their judges and their rulers, 
and the abbots and bishops carried croziers in their hands. Croziers, by the way, are a type of staff with a curled top. The bishops and clergy all wore black capes, while all of the monks and abbots wore black coals. All of the men gave out grotesque and sickening moans and groans. Some even called out to Priest Wachlin by name, begging him to pray for them. In the mix of all these tormented souls on their way to judgment, the priest would report that he saw a few of these men who were highly esteemed and who, in human estimation, were now associated with the saints in heaven. The priest, now desperately in need of some new undergarments, stood shaking as he leaned on his staff and continued to watch in horror. Immediately following the rest of the procession was an, was an immense army that had no visible color, only total blackness and fiery flames. The entire invisible army was mounted upon the greatest war horses they had, the Sarah Jessica Parker war horse, and they had thousands <laughs> of them. Shut the hell up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest war horse, the Sarah oh Jessica Parker war horse. Uh. <laughs> 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 yeah. Sarah Jessica Warhorse. Yeah. Every warrior and every horse was fully armed and ready for battle to end all battles, and they carried with them black banners that flew loose in the south and southeast winds. Then he saw Richard and Baldwin, the two sons of Count Gilbert, who had recently died. And then came along a viscount and lawyer, Landry of Warbeck, the same Landry of Warbeck that had attacked poor old priest Wachlin at an earlier date. He had also accepted bribes for his own pleasure and perverted justice for his own gain, and he shunned the poor. Langey was lamenting in excruciating pain through his deafening cries and screams, and as he was doing so, he begged the priest to get a message to his wife. And the message read, Okay, listen, honey, it was me that killed the family dog after it took a dump in my favorite shoe, and I know, I know, I get how much Bobby truly loved that dog. It was a wonderful dog, really great dog to have around, very great dog, and Bobby loved it. I mean, he loved it more than anything, even us, but thus is the cycle of life and death, and that dog provided us a family of three with an amazing meal consisting of a relatively high protein content when compared to that of the last four house cats that we had. I mean, did he not, Ethel Dreda? Did he not? Also, honey, honey, baby, hey, hey, uh, remember to record that ball game on Saturday? It's going to be the biggest game of the millennia. Mark my words. Wow, man. That's obviously a very, very important message to get to the wife, man. Doubtful she ever got it, though, but hey, you never know. I mean, yeah, he, he really covered the, the basics there. But just hope the ball game is recorded. <laughs> Writing it down as it happens. <laughs> yeah, just etched. <laughs> just like yeah. a Rembrandt style set of paintings. That would be like cool. Rembrandt, dude, that would be sweet. <laughs> I like renditions of all the old artists, dude. Yeah. Some Botticellis. Totally. So as the troops marched on, pushing Langey forward, one of the troops said to the priest, Believe not, Landry, for he is a deceiver. Once the troops and all things passed, the priest began to reflect on what he had just witnessed and said within his mind's eye, Doubtless these are Hennigan's people. I've often heard of their being seen, but I laughed at the stories, having never had any certain proofs of such things. Now, indeed, I assuredly behold the ghosts of the departed. But no one will believe me when I tell the tale, unless I can exhibit the mortal eyes some tangible proof of what I've seen. I will therefore mount one of the horses, which was following the troop without any riders, 
I will take it home and show it to my neighbors to convince them that I do speak the truth. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And then he set out to capture one of the steeds at the back of the procession and was able to snatch the reins of a black steed, but the beastly animal was easily able to violently burst away from his grip and disappeared back into the troops. Wachlin grew upset at his failure, but was quick to bounce back and devised a simple plan to run ahead and position himself in the middle of the path and wait for a horse to trod by. And soon enough, a horse came trotting by, and the priest put out his hand. The horse came up to him and allowed him to mount. At the same time of mounting, the horse gave off a horrendous snorting, and from those big-ass nostrils came clouds of vapor as large as full-grown oak. It's a quote. Quickly, the priest put his left foot into the stirrup and grabbed onto the reins, and as he grabbed onto the saddle, he instantly felt that his foot was on fire. He looked over, and sure enough, his foot was resting in red-hot iron. Simultaneously, the hand that he held the bridle with was totally frozen, which he felt deep in his vitals. And in the midst of all that shit going on, four monstrous knights rode up to him, muttering detestable cries and shouts. They weren't happy that the priests had commandeered one of their horses, and three of the four grabbed his garbs. The fourth one told the rest to let him go because he also had a message he wanted the priest to give to his own wife. When the priest asked him who he was, the knight responded that he was, I am William de Glaw, son of Barno, and was once the renowned steward of William de Bretel, and his father William, Earl of Hereford. While in the world I abandoned myself to evil deeds and plunder, was guilty of more crimes than could be recounted. But above all, I am tormented for my usuries. I once lent money to a poor man, and received a security of mill which belonged to him. As he was not able to discharge the debt, I kept the mortgage property and left it to my heirs, disinheriting my debtor's family. You see that I have in my mouth a bar of hot iron from the mill, the weight of which I feel to be more oppressive than the Tower of Ruin. Tell, therefore, my wife Beatrice, and my son Roger, to afford me relief by speedily restoring to the right heir the pledge from which they have received more than I advanced. Man, you just don't get ghosts like that anymore. That ghost, like, found such a... Just a, like a congenial way of being cold. He like just talked about this stuff that he had done, but he was just like sounded like your buddy, like fresh back, yeah. and catching a wave, riding right the barrel on a yeah. great California afternoon. Like, damn, it's hard not to like him. Seriously, and it seems nowadays all you get are ghosts who want to throw things at you and tell you to get out. I mean, we have been around for a while. The ghosts probably just they're like, get the hell out of here, man. This is my yeah, house. You don't belong here. This is my house way before it was your house. <laughs> Exactly. So Priest Walkland replied that he wouldn't be able to accomplish such a feat because he didn't know who William de Gloss or his family or his wife was. And even if he were able to track down his wife, she'd just laugh hysterics at him. And he didn't want that of all things. The Phantom Knight persisted until the priest conceded. Then the priest changed his mind because he started to think about the implications of a priest conveying a message of a damned spirit to a living soul. It's not right to publish such things. I will on no account tell anyone what you require of me. And that really pissed the already angry knight off. In fact, the knight was so pissed 
that he grabbed the priest by the throat and dragged him along the hard ground all the while crying out in nightmarish whimpers and whines. When the priest felt the hand around his throat, it burned like fire, and in an instant he cried out, saying, Help me, Holy Mary, the glorious Mother of Christ. The priest's cries for help did not fall upon deaf ears, for a friendly horseman rode up to them and brandished a large sword over the knight's head and exclaimed in a very manly fashion, he said, Will ye kill my brother, ye accursed ones? Loose him and be gone. Wow, get this man an acting gig immediately. In due time, the knights all took off with their tails between their legs, leaving a trickle of urine as they went. And once the priest and the horsemen were alone, the horsemen said to him, Do you not know me? The priest shook his head, saying no. I am Robert, son of Ralph LeBlanc, and your brother... Priest Wachlin was completely taken aback, confused, and rather astonished at this insane series of events that just unfolded before his eyes. That's when the horseman, who, in this part of the story, is now referred to as a knight, related a number of intimate things that both had done in their childhood together. The priest continued to act dumb and said that he had no recollection of anything he was being told. Then the knight told him that it was he that raised Priest Wachlin after his parents had died and that it was he who loved him more than anyone else. He told him that he sent him to school in France and gave him money and clothes and everything he needed to have a slight advantage in life. He told the priest that he did everything he could to benefit him in every way possible. Then he told the priest that he seemed to have forgotten all of the nice things that were done for him. And now at this time, he is purposefully refusing to admit that he recognizes who this horseman knight is. After a long and awkward pause that only such a situation would afford, the priest began to burst into explosions and rivers of tears and admitted that he was lying about not recognizing him. At that point, the brother then said, You deserve to die and stuff and to be dragged with us to partake of the torments we suffer because, like... You've ravishly laid hands on things which belong to our reprobate crew, and that's not very cool. So uncool that no other living man has, like, ever dared to make such an attempt. But the mass that you sang today earlier, not sure if you remember that, but it has saved you from perishing, and also has permitted me thus to appear to you and to, like, unfold to you my wretched condition and stuff. So the horseman knight brother of the priest continued to tell him about having to leave poor old Walkland because he needed to travel to England, and during those travels, he had committed many sins. Oh boy, man, many, many sins. And he said that by the creator's order, his life was ended and has since had to undergo the most intense and unending suffering for those sins, sins of which consisted of hours and hours, days in, days out of nothing but dry-ass masturbation. Just laying tread on the palms, you know? <laughs> Just crazy palm blisters. Just, like, insane. His brother continued to speak about all the sufferings he had to endure for many years. He spoke of... Flaming armor. Infernal stench. Intolerable weight. Scorches us. Inextinguishable. You know what I mean? The priest, of course, did not know, and the horseman continued, I have been tormented with unutterable sufferings, man. 
But when you were ordained and sang your first mass, my beautiful brother, your father Ralph was like released from purgatory or whatever, and the unnecessary weight of that stupid shield I had to carry finally fell from my arm. I still carry this stupid sword, but I mean, I'm pretty confident that by the end of the year, I will be super relieved of that burden as well and stuff. Poor dude. Well, he continued to talk about his sufferings and mentioned a mass of bloody gore that was in the shape of a man's head, which was entangled within the spurs of his boots. He explained that he used to enjoy the spurs that were once shiny, but due to all of the people he murdered, he now had to carry his... He now had to carry this bloody mass, which weighed him down more than if he were carrying Mount St. Michael. He also had to explain that it wasn't really blood after all, but it was actually fire. His final words to the priest were the following. I'm like not permitted, my brother, to converse any longer with you, for I must hasten to follow this unhappy troop here. Let me tell you, they're unhappy and it's a real drag. But alas, remember me. I pray you, and give me the sucker of your prayers and alms and stuff, because in one year after Palm Sunday I trust to be saved, and by the mercy of the Creator released from all my torments, and like everything and whatnot. Man, and with those remarkable words, the horseman knight and brother of the priest trotted off back toward the troops. Immediately afterward, the priest became seriously ill for an entire week with God knows what, but he would recover soon enough. He would go on to live in good health for almost 15 long years after that incident before succumbing to death. And that is the end of the story. And I think for the episode. Man. Woo! That last story, dude. Like, could you imagine being part of all that? Oh, no, like, this man. is what I, you're I seeing. Would That's hope insane. that I'm seeing it and not part of it. You know, not part of that procession. Yeah, like actually being included. I'd this be like, oh, sucks. do not want to be a part uh, of this. Being like Walkland's yeah. position, watching it, and be like, damn, man. Shouldn't have fucked around, yeah, brother. For sure. Christoph Walklin. Yeah, <laughs> Christoph Walklin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I love these stories, man. They're pretty great. Pretty great. Well, a lot of them are, I mean, they're no different. I mean, it's what's interesting about it is. They're really not that much different from the stories that people tell right. today. And this is hundreds of years later. Thousands. Thousands of years later. It's crazy. Yeah, ho- historical ghost stories, they, like the, the main crux of these stories have just been passed down through the years. And yeah. not much has changed. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think so. interesting, man. Well, folks, our lovely little bunch of coconuts, that's going to be it for today. We hope you enjoyed our little ghost adventure through some historical accounts of ghost tales. Yeah, And don't forget to subscribe, like, share, most importantly, share. Share any way you can think of in any way that is even remotely feasible. Please hit us up on Twitter or X, partake in our content, engage with us, become engaged to us. Offer us suggestions of what you would like to hear because we'll do it. We'll cover it. Don't you worry. We will fucking do it. Just reach out, even if it's just to say hello. We do love that. I'm serious. And until next time, good morning, good afternoon. And good night. And good luck. <laughs> <laughs>